The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. If NDEs are a gift, then how does that gift manifest itself in our lives? What insights, changes, or skills do NDE survivors receive? And how diverse or extreme might those gifts be? Welcome to this week's edition of NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Once a person who has had an NDE begins to assimilate what has happened to them, what they have learned about themselves and the nature of reality, they sometimes also discover that they have gained certain talents, insights, or powers they didn't have before. No more fear of death, a desire to help others, and perhaps some psychic gifts can be just some of the results of having an NDE. One person who played the harp beautifully at one of our IONS conferences gained his musical skill, he told us, from an NDE in which he was promised this musical ability often attributed to the angels. Our guest today has quite an unusual ability related in some way to her three near-death experiences. She refers to it as PK, an abbreviation of the term psychokinesis. Now, Wikipedia tells us that uh, the word psychokinesis is from the Greek language psyche, meaning mind, soul, spirit, heart, or breath, and kinesis, meaning motion or movement. And uh, telekinesis is also a word from the Greek that means distant movement. The term telekinesis was coined in 1890 by a Russian psychical researcher, Alexander uh, Aksinov. Uh, the term psychokinesis was coined in 1914 by American author-publisher Henry Holt in his book on the cosmic relations. And adopted by his friend American parapsychological R.J.B. Ryan in 1934 in connection with experiments to determine if a person could influence the outcome of falling dice. Both concepts have been described by other terms, such as remote influencing, distance influencing, remote mental influence, uh, mind over matter, and so forth. Originally, telekinesis was coined to refer to the movement of objects thought to be caused by ghosts of deceased persons or mischievous spirits, angels, demons, or other supernatural forces. Later, the term began to refer to an ability allegedly possessed by living people. It was speculated that certain people could cause movement without any connection to a spiritualist setting, such as in a darkened seance room, and psychokinesis was added to the lexicon. Eventually, psychokinesis became the term preferred by the parapsychological community. Popular usage favors the word telekinesis to describe the paranormal movement of objects, perhaps due to the world's, uh, the word's resemblance to other terms such as telepathy and teleportation. Some early researchers who studied psychokinesis speculated that within the human body, an unidentified fluid termed the psychode, or psychic force, or ectanic force, uh, existed and was capable of being released to influence matter. Robert Schrock has written, I do believe that some psychokinesis is real, referring to the evidence from micro-psychokinesis obtained by the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research that's PAIR, is the acronym for that. Experiments and similar studies and some reports of macro uh, PK observed in poltergeist cases. 
He reports once uh, seeing a book jump off a shelf while in a room where a female psychokinesis agent was also present. Then Michael Crichton described what he uh, termed a successful experience with psychokinesis as a spoon-bending party in his 1988 book, Travels. Uh, Dean Radin also reported that he, like Michael Crichton, was able to bend the bowl of a spoon over with unexplained ease of force with witnesses present at a different informal PK experiment gathering. And some of you who may have seen the movie uh, The Matrix may remember that uh, Neo comments on a child bending a spoon. The child reminds him uh, that uh, the secret is there is no spoon. My interview with our guest today, Cheryl Lee, was recorded at the Washington, D.C. IONS conference in August of last year. Because of its length, we will continue our conversation on next week's show as well. But tell us about your your three near-death experiences. Um, okay. Well, my first one happened when I was very, very young. I was just a toddler. I was a bit of a Houdini as a child. I seemed to be able to unlock every door that my parents had put in my way to keep me out of trouble. And on this particular day, I opened a door to the basement while playing with the family dog, who probably weighed twice what I did at that age. And the two of us took a tumble down the stairway, and I took a header and cracked my skull open right here. Um, my, what I remember after hitting the, hitting the bottom step was um, this lady picking me up. And I didn't know who she was or... You know, and and at the time I wasn't even really worried about who she was because I just felt really, really cared for, and loved, and happy, and everything was good, and there was like absolutely no pain, and it was really there was, it it was like this dark, pretty light, like it, it was almost like a a really, really dark purpley blue light, and it was kind of sparkly and pretty, and at the time it was. It was okay for a little bit, but then being a little kid, it kind of occurred to me, I really want my dad. <laughs> and, that's, and that's, I really, really want dad now. Like, you're a nice lady, but I want my dad. And then the next thing I kind of remember is, I guess I came out of it, and you know, my dad was holding me. <laughs> and that, that was kind of the end of that experience. But I kept seeing that lady throughout my childhood, and I didn't know who she was, because there was no pictures of her in my house. And it turned out that my grandmother on my mom's side had passed away just before I was born. And my middle name is actually named after her. And there were no pictures of her because my grandfather was still going through a terrible grieving process. Um, he was twice my grandmother's age when they were married. And he had no expectations that he would outlive her. And uh, she died very suddenly and very tragically. And he almost didn't survive it. And so I'd never seen her. And yet, as a child, she was like pretty much my first, my first, my first imaginary friend uh-huh. in a way. You know, this lady that, that picked me up and made me feel safe and, and comforted when I took a header down the basement stairway <laughs> and hurt myself. And, you know, and that was a, kind of an interesting thing that went along with it was my grandfather was actually terminally ill when I was little diagnosed with terminal cancer mm. and he got cured <laughs> really and I, I susp- apparently after I was born he he spent a lot of time with me mm-hmm. and I think I actually used 
like words that grandma that I'd heard from her and she spoke German no one else in the family spoke German my grandparents all spoke different first languages and so I would use words that I'd heard her say and he would recognize that so he spent a lot of time with me like he looked after me he was retired and um, and my mom worked so he used to babysit me quite a bit when I was very little and we spent a lot of time together and I would use these words and whatever it was like whether it was just the fact that he enjoyed spending time with his first granddaughter or whether it was because he kind of knew that there was three of us that were hanging out together rather than just the two of us um, he got better and he he lived quite a few more years after that (laughs) yeah and he was actually in a medical study because he had this complete remission from terminal cancer amazing yeah (laughs) do you think he realized that did you talk to him about your imaginary friend at all I probably did. I mean, I was a toddler. I was really little when, when he, you know, he used to look after me before I was old enough to, to uh, you know, go full-time in school. Like, I had kindergarten until, right. you know, that, the mornings, and he'd look after me in the afternoons. <laughs> Do you suppose that he uh, had an idea that your imaginary friend was his... I think so. Yeah. I, I, nice. I, I kind of think so. Like I said, because I would use phrases that... Yeah. The, you know, because they were German ones that nobody else in the family would have used those words. <laughs> now, you you got some some gifts. Did they start with your first NDE? Um, I I think some of them certainly did. I mean, my parents both have stories of me um, telling them things that turned out to be true. My dad's favorite Christmas story is, I guess, I was. I was about six or seven, and um, my dad had told my older brothers that the Santa Claus topic was off limits. Do not tell her that there is no Santa Claus kind of thing, Mm -hmm. that Santa Claus is real, and you better not ruin Christmas for your youngest sister here. (laughs) And that was kind of the rule. And, and you know, and I was kind of getting to the point where, where, you know, my oldest brother was five years older, and he really, you know, he was jaded and worldly and he didn't really believe in that stuff but he was trying his best to keep his mouth shut about that and of course I was of course there's Santa Claus and this is what I'm going to get and I described this tea set and it was it was porcelain tea set that had blue flowers on it and apparently I described this tea set in loving detail and I'd written a note to Santa with my mom's help describing that this is like the one thing I really wanted for Christmas and and it was just that was it and I knew that I was going to get it like I was absolutely convinced my mom and dad looked everywhere for this tea set they could not find it they, you know, they all they wanted to do was get me that tea set, and they could not find it anywhere. And they didn't think the tea set existed. They just, you know, it was about two weeks before Christmas, and they'd given up. And my dad had an office Christmas party, mm-hmm. and and at the office Christmas party, um, there was Santa there, and of course it was arranged that Santa would give each each little little kid a present. Well, I was absolutely convinced that Santa was going to give me my tea set, and my parents were just mortified. <laughs> But I was not going to get the tea set because they had no idea what the presents were going to be at this. And I guess they had tried to explain to me that, well, he might not give it to you now, but, you know, it's still a couple weeks wait till it's really Christmas. So, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't pin your hopes in this. And I was absolutely convinced I was getting my tea set. And that's what I got. So on Santa's knee, and it was exactly, it had the blue flowers on porcelain that I had described. And my dad said that for years after that, you could not... No one, the most skeptical child of the neighborhood, could not convince me that Santa was not real. 
I mean, my dad said that even he started to wonder if Santa was real. The premonition and clairvoyance. Well, of course, because nobody would know that. And right. I think my mother's favorite story was when I was um, about five years old. I really wanted drum lessons. I wanted to play drums. I was going to play drums. That was the only interested in instrument I was interested in. And my mom wanted me to play piano first. And I don't really blame her. A five-year-old playing drums is not... <laughs> not what you, the neighbors want to hear. No, not what, er, not what every parent wants. And particularly, you know, a little girl playing drums. Nowadays, it's more accepted, but back then it was unusual. And so my, my mom tried to talk me into piano. And I looked her in the eye, apparently, and said, I'm never going to make a living playing piano, but I will make a living as a drummer someday, so can't we just forego all this and let me play drums? And my mom, you know, thought, okay, this is silly. She's not going to make a living as a professional drummer someday. And, and uh, my mom brought up this story when I was um, 19 years old and playing drum as a professional drummer in a military <laughs> band and going on tour with bands. And, 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 and actually, that was how I paid for all of my university education was by playing drums. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about moving things? Did that happen with the fir- after the first... That happened after the second. Okay. Well, tell us about your second NDE. <laughs> I don't know how much, I mean, is, uh, you know, today at this conference already, people have kind of, as soon as I say I had a negative one, they changed the subject. Oh, I think it, negative ones are very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've never really gone through all of it. I probably won't get through all of it, but it's, I had my appendix burst when I was 10 years old. Yeah. And my poor parents were... You know, my, my parents both worked, and it was Monday morning. I woke up with a tummy ache. I had been absolutely fine the day before. And, of course, my brothers were both saying, ah, she's faking it. She doesn't want to go to school today. Mm. You know, and, and everyone was kind of like, yeah, this is kind of a mysterious stomach ache that just shows up half an hour before it's time to leave for school. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think that there was some doubt as to whether or not it was anything more than I don't really feel like going to school today. Yeah. Um, but I got sicker and sicker, and in the end, my parents did uh, take me to the doctors. Mm-hmm. And from the doctor's office, I was basically sent an ambulance straight to the hospital because my appendix was in the process of bursting. Um, and what I remember of that one was I remember leaving my body. And I remember when I was in my body, everything was very nightmarish already and I guess when you've got that kind of poison going through your system it does cause kind of hallucinations and everything seemed monstrous and scary to me anyway and I actually felt better when I was outside of my body like that part was okay but instead of at the time I remember there were people there well people like lights people you know like um Spirits, entities. Yes, spirits, entities that wanted me to go a certain way. And I don't know, I guess at 10 years old, I was already, you know, that preteen, miserable quality people, <laughs> stage people go through. And I was like, no, I'm going to find mom and dad, you know. And I found mom and dad arguing in the waiting room, and they were having a terrible argument. And I'd never seen them have an argument like that when I was, you know, growing up, because they just didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and of course, they were blaming each other for not getting me to the hospital sooner, and what if I die, and what, you know? I mean, it was a really 
just gut-wrenching thing to see my parents having this kind of dispute and not knowing what was going to happen to me. And uh, it was really... It, I think it was too adult for me to see. Yes. You know, and it it kind of made me feel like everything was... Everything was on the line, and it was up, you know, it was up to me to, to fix it. And I remember trying to communicate with them, and they couldn't see me. And that was really upsetting when you're a little kid, and your parents aren't acknowledging you, and you're trying to get a, trying to get their attention, and they couldn't figure out that I was there. Um, and then things just kind of got more and more nightmarish from there. And I'm not going to get into all the details because some of it I'm just not. Uh, to talking about did you, did you travel away from that scene into some other place kind of wandered around I, I remember the spirit people wanted me to go to a certain place and I was sure that if I went there that I wasn't coming back and I seemed to have all this knowledge about what would happen if I didn't come back and what would happen if I did come back and I was very very sure that my parents would get divorced if I did not come back that their marriage was not going to survive the death of their youngest child. So you had a premonition of alternative lives yeah. that they would have lived if, depending on your decision. Yeah, and, and I remember thinking about how it was going to affect my brothers and how it was going to affect my, I, you know, like my dad dying alone and lonely and heartbroken. And it was just... Now, were these, were these fears or were these actual visions that you were having? These were actual... Like, I knew... I knew and 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 the thing is I saw other things that came true like for many years I kind of thought okay that was just a really bad nightmare because I didn't I I didn't even know it was considered an NDE until recently Mm -hmm. because I didn't know there was such a thing as a distressing NDE and I probably would have dismissed it as a nightmare except that I saw other things that have like there have been milestones throughout my life that have come true that I remember seeing on that timeline, including the car accident that led to my third NDE. You know, I, I re- and, and, you know, right before my third NDE, and I could feel it coming, I did all, I got all my paperwork in order, I cleaned my house, <laughs> I phoned my mom and told her I loved her, <laughs> you know, like I did everything just in case I didn't come back from that one. So, I, because I, you know, I started to clue in the, yeah, all those things that, I remember having, you know, premonitions about, it, you know, seemed to be happening. But one of my premonitions was that if I did come back, that my parents would stay together. Now, they just celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary. So they're still together and they're still doing good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, know. you know, I I wouldn't call that a, a bad NDE. I think that was... Um, you saw, you saw, you had a vision of the future, which in, yeah. obviously contained good, good and bad things. But there were other parts of the NDE, like I mean, there's the premonition part, but there was also that feeling of being really, really lost because I wasn't going to go with the spirit guides, and I was being a bad kid. I guess is how I kind of felt, like you know that. I, I mean, there was just a lot of things where I thought, you know, part of it was I actually felt a little bit guilty because part of me kind of wanted to go with them, you know. Were, did you have the feeling these were good spirit guides? Or? Some of them were ones I had seen, including my grandma. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I knew they were, but I knew I was just not going there. 
and, and I got lost and I saw things that were nightmarish and scary. So there was also this idea that I saw a lot of very adult things too, which were nightmarish and scary to me when I was 10 years old. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I saw the end of my first marriage and I mean, after that NDE, I, remember telling people, I'm not getting married, I'm not getting married, I'm not getting married. And, you know, when you're 10 years old and you say, I'm not ever going to get married, they just say, yeah, wait, you know, wait till you're 12. <laughs> wait till you're 20. Wait till you're 24. You know, like, don't don't tell us this when you're 10. But, I mean, I went through, you know, an I'm not going to get married stage. And even, I mean, when I did meet my first husband, he spent five years asking me to get married at least a couple times a year before I relented. And it was still that idea. And even in my current marriage, my poor husband went through five years of talking me into it. <laughs> so those were vivid images that you had when you were when you were having your NDE. Yeah. Okay. So after that NDE, <laughs> tell us about the additional gifts that you um, got. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd call it a gift, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that occurred to me when I was 11, which was a year after, you know, the, my appendix had had, to, well, what's left of it was taken out, um, was that um, a school teacher hit me in class, and I wasn't doing anything bad. I had actually been doing what I was told to do by the school guidance counselor because they didn't want to skip me ahead into another grade because I was already the youngest in my class, I was already the smallest in my class, and there were concerns that I wasn't physically and emotionally mature enough to be skipped ahead into another grade. So what they had told me to do when I was bored and going a little bit nuts in school was to take out a sketchbook and draw pictures, and that that would be okay and that nobody would punish me for that. And this teacher hit me in the face for doing that. And, um, and I mean, I felt really, like, you know, it, completely betrayed by this woman. And a book flew across the classroom and hit her. And in front of a room full of 10-year-olds, or 11-year-olds, I guess. And, um, and of course, after that, every, all the adults would lie about it. You know, I mean, I saw it, my classmates saw it, and suddenly all the adults were rewriting history and pretending that, you know, I, I had done something really, really bad, but nobody would actually say what it was. Uh, and um, the school actually wanted me to be put on um, antipsychotics and whatever else they could put me on to try and shut it down. They accused you of throwing the book? Um that was one of the stories. <laughs> I mean, it, it was really, uh, you know, some of the stories really didn't make sense. I mean, that was one of the things that I found very difficult was how do the adults believe that I had time to get up, walk across the room, pick up a book, throw it at her, and then run back into my desk before she, <laughs> you know, and, and, and sit there like, you know. What did what did the uh, what did your classmates say about it? Did they uh, realize that that wasn't the case? They stayed away from me. <laughs> a lot of my classmates, some of them just kind of because they knew that something, something had happened, they couldn't explain. They knew something had happened, and I think people kind of when things like that happen, people forget or they they rationalize it away or they just do whatever they have to do internally to not have to deal with it. 
and a lot of people basically just stayed away from me. Um, you know, it was it was really tough because up until that point in school, I had been a fairly popular little girl and had lots of friends, and I liked going to school. Like school was fun. I learned things. It was interesting. Um, but uh, you know, sometimes I fa- found it overwhelming. Like I, I mean, even at that age, I had difficulty being around crowded, noisy places and and a lot of people, and uh, and you couldn't get them to like give you a break you know, and just go sit in the library for an hour until you're okay with it. I mean, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't give me that kind of a kindness and they wouldn't even let me sit there quietly with my sketchbook at that point, you know. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tough because yeah, people just stayed away from me and I was taken out of the class once a week to go to the guidance counselors who gave me idiotic tests. I mean, they tested me for everything. Um, and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. You know, I didn't have any learning disabilities. I, I, I wasn't uh, disabled in any way. I, like, I mean, they just went through it all, and they couldn't find anything. And I mean, I, for years, I actually went for testing once a week um, through about three years. <laughs> and they couldn't find anything. All based on this book flying across the room. Well, and the teacher's nervous breakdown. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, what other um, occasions have occurred since uh, that where things have moved without your actually physically doing the um, moving? Oh, well, I, I mean, there's there's been quite a few. Now, I, I'm not always sure if it's me or, or not. Um, the night my... I had one living grandmother at that point, and she passed away when I was about 24. And the night she passed away, all of the electronics in the house came on by themselves. Um, to even, like, we actually, I was married to my first husband at the time, and uh, he went around unplugging everything, and they still came on. Interesting. Yeah. Now, was this after your third NDE? No, it was actually prior to my third NDE, okay. but it was the night my grandmother had passed away, and she had actually said goodbye to me. Pre, like when I when I saw her for the last time, she said, "This is the last time." I mean, you know, like she absolutely knew when she was going to die. It was like she planned it. And she wasn't in the same house. That, no. So it was your. Yeah, like I didn't know when, when you know, like, and I mean, everyone kind of said, "Oh no, she's 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 just saying that." Like you can't know that you're going to die when you're going to die, and but she apparently did. And um, the night she passed away, around the time she passed away, it was the middle of the night, and that's when everything... And I remember dreaming about her that night. Um, And the dreams were really peaceful, and she just said, like, I know you're not going to be happy about this, and I'm sorry, like, I'm just, I'm sorry, this is how it, you know, it's my time, and you're just going to have to accept this, and it's okay, and we can still communicate, and it's all right. Um... And I, I'm not sure whether the things moving around the house was me being kind of upset and having a little psychic tantrum, or whether that was just all the energy from... Because, I mean, when I dreamt about her, I mean, it was just this big ball of energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like a force of nature. My grandmother was like a force of nature. I mean, she was... Um, she she was a very independent woman. I mean, at a time when women didn't work and have careers, she was a professional musician. Um, 
you know, when she retired from doing that, her and my grandfather ran a family business together. I mean, so she'd always worked and done her own thing. It was a free spirit. So she was like this force of nature. When she when she passed away, it was just... Was she a role model for you? Um, I think she understood my experiences even when I was really little and didn't. You know, a lot of the things that she suggested that I could do to help me cope, like actually sitting down and just drawing with a sketchbook and playing music. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she was a very talented musician herself. We used to play together a lot when I was little. Um, But yeah, I mean, she had an understanding of, and being out in nature and having quiet time and turning off the TV. When I spent my summers with my grandparents when I was little and there was no TV for the summer, which I think a lot of people would just couldn't do nowadays but but you know like I you know I grew up with that was okay you could just turn off that stuff and go outside and sit under a tree and read a book or do a puzzle or something thanks to Cheryl Lee for sharing her story with us we will continue the interview on next Monday's show to learn more about the International Association for Near-Death Studies check out our website at iands.org for NDE Radio this is Lee Whitting thanks for listening (laughs) 